Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. What you're asking can't be done. This is a futile effort. If it could be done, it shouldn't be done. But it can't be done. It, it can't be done, obviously. This season on Actuality, they said it couldn't be done. Stories of people achieving the unachievable. And this week, we are looking at a crusade by scientists across the globe to solve humanity's energy problem once and for all. This will be a clock cycle only. 30 seconds. That ticking sound that you hear is the countdown clock in a control room at Princeton University's plasma physics lab. They are doing some pretty fascinating research that we're going to get to in just a minute. But one thing it could also be counting down is us, the planet. Because in terms of energy, we are doomed. So I'm generously assuming that we're all familiar with the idea of climate change. But just as a reminder, we depend on fossil fuel for everything we do on Earth. And it's running out. And even if we burn the remaining amount of fossil fuel we have left, climate is going to get so hot, the sea levels are going to rise. Sorry, low-lying coastal communities. You're done. And, you know, wind power, great. Solar, wonderful. But they are very unlikely to be enough on their own. Nuclear power is clean except for nuclear waste and disasters like Fukushima. So today we're talking about something that could actually fix this problem. A little something we call nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is the process that powers the sun and all the stars in the universe. And that guy and many, many other scientists are trying to replicate that on Earth. He is Stuart Prager, director of Princeton University's Plasma Physics Lab. People have been talking about nuclear fusion for almost 100 years because it could change humanity. It's essentially limitless. The fuel runs for thousands or a million years. It is entirely clean from a global climate change point of view. Zero contribution to greenhouse gases. Free energy, no pollution, it'd be safe, it's small, there's no oil conflicts, cheap electric desalination plants, people won't fight over water. And today, governments representing more than half of the world's population are spending tens of billions of dollars to try and make this a reality. Businesses are backing private firms working to do this. People like Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Peter Thiel of PayPal, Paul Allen of Microsoft are all putting their money where their hot fusion mouths are. But, 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 but we don't have it yet. Breaking news, everybody. <laughs> 40, 50 years ago, people said it was 30 years away. 30 years ago, they said it was 30 years away. Today, they say it's 30 years away. So this week, fusion. When the hell is it going to get here? Let's go back to Princeton and try and find out. So we started by leaving New York City, where, by the way, speaking of uh, clean energy, I literally can't keep my windows open or the apartment gets covered in soot. Uh, and we headed to Princeton. In my sweet 2010 Hyundai <laughs> accent, the Blue Goose. And we got to this lab, which was kind of out in the middle of the woods. It like, looked like an office park. Yeah. I uh, was not excited by the appearance of the lab. <laughs> no. Well, actually, the security gate was imposing. That was cool, yeah. And once you get inside, you go through a few doors and a few stairs and a few more doors. And everything is concrete. There's pipes everywhere. The light's all yellow. Uh, you're actually inside of a concrete tunnel underground as you go from like, the main office building to the actual thing we're going to see. And eventually you, you get to this just building-sized machine, and it's like a giant metal orb. 
So right now we are on the outside of this big spherical container. Yes, we're out, we're outside the vacuum vessel. There's like a kajillion tubes going into it. I mean, like I can't I can even count how many tubes and pipes and things. What are all these things? Okay, uh, I'm Sorry, not sure I'm... if there's any one person that knows what everything <laughs> is, but some people can get close to that. This is Alfred von Hawley. He's the head engineer at the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab. The orb that we're looking at is a container. It's a container made, obviously, of metal, but then inside of that, it's a container made of magnetic fields. And the magnetic fields are holding kind of like a little piece of the sun. Uh, Here's what we're talking about. Here's how fusion works. When you fuse two atoms together, two hydrogen atoms, they mush together to make a helium atom and just a ton of heat. And the idea is, like with most power plants, you harness that heat to make electricity. It's the opposite process that runs present nuclear reactors where you split the atom. So here you fuse it. That's Stuart again. And this is why there's practically no radioactive waste. So like in Fukushima, you know, regular reactor, you're splitting atoms, okay? So think of um, smashing a marble with a hammer. You know, you get all these shards. Those are like radioactive particles. But with fusion, you are mushing, you are combining two marbles together. So you don't get all these nasty byproducts. But if you're imagining mushing two marbles together, maybe it doesn't make sense that this would be easy. And it's in fact not easy. It takes a lot of work. To do it, scientists have to get these atoms really hot, like the sun hot. Actually 10 times hotter than the core of the sun. The core of the sun is at 10 million degrees. We produce gases that are 50 to 100 million degrees. So back to this big orb-like metal machine um, in which they're cooking up hydrogen. They're they're shooting every force of the universe at it to heat this gas up. We puff a very, very small amount of gas into that Radio waves and particle beams and millions of amps of current until the atoms basically start to break down and smash into themselves. Basically, hydrogens just smash into each other. And then fusion, the energy of the sun. At a safe distance away from that orb, we sat down with Stuart because I had a couple questions about this. When you say create the sun and earth, does that mean that we're going to somehow burn up into a ball of fiery doom if something goes wrong? I think not. (laughs) So why doesn't it just explode? And the reason is it's extremely dilute. The density of the plasma, we call it, in a nuclear reactor and in our experiments is about a million times less dense than the air in this room. So it's super hot, but it's very dilute. So there's no explosive possibility whatsoever, completely safe. Any malfunction, the plasma cools down and it just extinguishes. So we're not worried about getting killed. So that's where I start my morning. Uh, But there is a problem with fusion that's not related to its safety. One small nagging problem. In this experiment and every experiment that's done so far, all the energy they put into heating up that plasma, the electricity, the radio waves, the particle accelerator, that is more energy than comes out at the end. Which is very inefficient, which is to say negative efficient. (laughs) Right. So the, the, the transformational power of fusion is matched by the scientific and engineering difficulty. It's one of the most uh, difficult science and engineering enterprises ever taken on by humankind. Why has it taken us so long? Why is it so hard to achieve that? Uh, it's hard for two reasons. One, 
It's not easy to make a hundred million degree plasma and control it and keep it hot. That's a deep physics challenge and we're very, very far along the path. Second big challenge is you have to take this sun, this 100 million degree plasma, and surround it with a material. So you have to develop a material that can withstand the intense heat that comes out of a 100 million degree plasma. And we have to take the sun and, and put it in a box. So it's a harder challenge than making the sun. So with those two challenges in mind, how close are we to actually getting out more energy than we put in? We've gotten close to that break-even point. We've got about two-thirds of the way there. There's an experiment under construction, an international experiment under construction in France called ITER, and that is under construction will produce 10 times more power out than goes in. So it will go 10 times beyond break-even. Stuart mentioned this thing called ITER. ITER is like the state-of-the-art of nuclear fusion research. It's it's like a 200-foot-tall mega version of what Princeton has, similar to what Princeton has. Uh, but it's massively over budget and behind. But if it works out, Prager says we will have actual efficient fusion power in 25 years. Which is something that people have been saying for a while. There's a old saying, fusion is the energy of the future and always will be. It is true that uh, 40 years ago, the pioneers of the field were estimating we'd have a reactor in 30 years. What happened? Two things. One, in truth, the scientific challenge was greater than they realized. And they were some of the best physicists in the world who started this effort. Two, they made financial projections as what it would take. The money never arrived. Uh, if you actually look at the progress we've made versus the money spent, uh, the pioneers' projections were about on track. Ah, money. Now we're talking about something that I can relate to. So far, the U.S. government, let alone other governments, has spent about $30 billion researching fusion since the 1950s, which is a lot of money. But it's also not that much compared to something like eh, the latest fighter jet for the U.S. Air Force, which cost $1.5 trillion, yes, that's with a T, to develop over the last 50 years. I Still can't get over that number. Um, and the private sector is now starting to get into the game, too. At least six companies, including uh, giants like Lockheed Martin. Who make that fighter. <laughs> and startups like Helion are working to make fusion energy happen on a commercial scale. But even if they can solve the engineering problem and get it to put out more power than we put in, it doesn't mean it's going to be economically feasible, that it'll be cheaper than, say, oil or natural gas or solar. Engineers have done uh, designs of fusion power plants where they calculate the cost of construction, the cost of materials, and all that, and they make uh, projections, the best engineering analyses that fusion would be competitive with existing energy sources. However, two years ago, we couldn't predict that the price of oil would drop by uh, two-thirds now. So predicting economics uh, 30 years away is very difficult. You know, and he says even if we don't actually know for sure that cold fusion will be economically competitive, the stakes are basically so high that we just, like, we cannot afford to count it out. The energy challenge and crisis for the world is so great that it would be very, very foolish with the limited knowledge we have as to what will succeed ultimately to pick winners. My feeling is you should do an, take an all-the-above strategy. So Stuart Prager says we should focus on all energy strategies. 
Well, except for one strategy. Right. This field of fusion has a sort of dark secret, we could say, that few people like to talk about. A weird uncle who hangs out in the attic because he's not welcome at dinner. A bastard child. (laughs) It's something called cold fusion. It's a technology that, for the most part, is actually considered a total fraud. And honestly, it makes some scientists like Stuart Prager really annoyed to even talk about it. It's been classified as a pathological science, and there's nothing more to say about it. You know, it's just a... (laughs) Sorry. I looked up pathological science, and it means a field of research based on wishful thinking, people who just won't quit and sort of start imagining their experimental results. Even though it is truly a pariah among scientific ideas, there are actually a few scientists and business people working on it, and more importantly, it's getting funded to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. And if humanity is truly doomed, we couldn't help but just spend a few minutes indulging our curiosity on this Strange science that so many physicists love to hate. Okay, Sabri, break it down. What are we talking about? Okay, so let's just go to 1989 really quick. Two scientists, Martin Fleischmann, Stanley Pons, they announce what comes to be called the Fleischmann-Pons experiment. They say they have achieved fusion on a tabletop. Which would be instead of the enormous two-story building thing that we just looked at, they, <laughs> they did it on a table? Yep. Don't need a giant magnetic chamber powered by all the forces of the universe. Don't need to put the sun in a box. Don't need plasma. Don't need to spend tens of billions of dollars on a mega orb. You can just do it on a tabletop. Unicorn magic. Welcome to the future. Sabri, can you explain what it is they're doing? Yeah. They they took a piece of palladium metal, this silvery platinum-like metal. Expensive metal, yes. <laughs> More expensive than gold. Peter Hagelstein at MIT there. And they would soak it with a type of hydrogen and run a current through it. And what comes out is is heat. So instead of like slamming atoms together in a big contraption, you can somehow get them to undergo nuclear reactions just by, you know, running electricity through a really expensive metal on a tabletop. You'd get a factor of 20 more thermal power coming out than electrical power in. The Fleischmann-Pons experiment, as it came to be known, got a lot of people talking. It got a ton of media coverage. But in the world of physics, their experiment uh, really did not go over very well. Hundreds of scientists tried to replicate the experiment. They couldn't. And eventually came to be viewed as a fraud. Around 1994, uh, there were probably something on the order of a thousand scientists that were involved in the field. And there was a considerable amount of research uh, uh, support available. If you fast forward to today, there's hardly anybody left in the field. I mean, perhaps we're down to, to 10 of us left or so. And yet, there is a small group of entrepreneurs and scientists out there raising millions of dollars trying to pursue this technology. And that is why it's got our attention, and that is why we are talking about it. We have raised uh, over $10.5 million since 2009. Robert Gottes is the founder of Brillouin Energy, and I asked him where he's getting this money from. Like, what does he tell venture capitalists? There is no venture in venture capital anymore. Um, And none of our money has come from venture capitalists. All of our money has come from high net worth individuals. 
So hundreds of scientists back in the day failed to replicate the Fleischmann-Pons phenomenon, but Robert says he has. And he says he's doing what hot fusion hasn't. We have demonstrated four times more thermal energy out versus what we put in. So that's actually not a surprise to Peter Hagelstein at MIT. Over the years, there's been many successful replications. And what about all those negative results back in the day? Didn't any of them do the experiment right? Well, none of them. Peter explains that these scientists either left something out or didn't use enough hydrogen or didn't use palladium. None of them actually replicated Fleischmann and Pons's experiment. And Robert, Robert Gottes, the guy from Brillouin who's raised the $10.5 million, he says physicists were quick to hate on cold fusion because it was threatening to steal funding from their projects. You had all of these people with PhDs in, in plasma physics. Their funding was actually being withheld. It was more than a threat. So Robert says that his company can come up with a kind of cold fusion space heater in two years if he can get enough funding. And that is quite a claim, which, if right, it would be a lot faster than waiting 25 years for the next hot fusion reactor. Be miraculous, even. So here's, here's one thing that, um, that enters my mind, Tim. There are definitely going to be people who hear this and they're going to be outraged that we are even giving the time of day to the cold fusion people. Probably Stuart Prager. And thank you, Stuart, for the great tour and teaching us about hot fusion. Please forgive our dalliance with cold fusion. <laughs> I mean, but let's go through us as as people who are not experts. Like, how, how should we approach this, right? So, so first, we can go and we can find peer-reviewed scientific journals. And there's actually not much of anything on cold fusion in peer-reviewed scientific journals, but they have an answer for that. They say, look, uh, they have been excluded by the scientific consensus from these journals. It is not a fantasy to say that science has made mistakes sometimes, that science can fall prey to social pressures that influence where it sort of explores at any given time. Some people talk about what's called the reputation trap when it comes to cold fusion research, where young scientists, particularly graduate students and postdocs, aren't eager to become jokes at the beginning of the careers by asking questions that their older peers probably don't want them asking. Yeah. Now, one thing that we can look at, one sort of solid place to land a little bit is the Department of Energy put together a panel of scientists in 2004 at the request, actually, of Peter Hagelstein and several other guys uh, to consider the benefits of research into cold fusion. And they did throw the cold fusion people one bone. The DOE folks were split evenly on whether or not there was some strange reaction happening that generated excess heat. In the Fleischmann-Pons experiment. Yeah, and that type of setup. But when it came to actual nuclear fusion... Well, the quote is, The preponderance of the reviewers' evaluations indicated that the occurrence of low-energy nuclear reactions is not conclusively demonstrated by the evidence presented. And yet, Goddess has his company. There's a billionaire named Tom Darden who's investing millions in cold fusion. There's an Italian engineer named Andre Rossi who has developed uh, some promising new experiments around cold fusion. People are still working on it. And you know what? Maybe these guys are just really good fundraisers. Or maybe, like Robert Goddess says, the private sector can spot high risk for high reward and is giving cold fusion a chance when academia won't. 
And maybe ITER, that giant fusion reactor in France, maybe it isn't 25 years away. Maybe it's 50 years away, but we're still pumping hundreds of millions of dollars a year into it. You know, whatever is going on in this field, ultimately, it speaks to the stakes. For hot fusion, for cold fusion, we are basically incredibly, desperately hungry for something that can solve our energy problem. Well, I'm looking at my watch, and uh, the minute hand has hit the uh, arbitrary point. <laughs> Listener, he's not looking at his watch. Shh, shh, shh. So, 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 what we would like to do is get your feedback on this episode and uh, future episodes. What have you heard that can't be done that probably should be? Email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or hit us up on Twitter at ActualityPod. Thanks to so lots of people. Uh, Jake Gorski composed our theme music and is our engineer. Thanks to Claire Tennisgetter, our producer. And also thanks to Marketplace's Satara Nieves and Deidre Depke for all of their help on this episode. See you guys next time. Bye.